This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. I go through a ton of reading and research every day. uh, And on Saturday mornings, I send out a free email newsletter with the five things that I found during the week that were the most valuable to me. It can be a link, it can be a chart, it can be a quote. um, But I keep it brief, and it's just the stuff I found was most valuable. So if this is something that you'd like to receive, just go to thefelderreport.com. You can sign up right there on the homepage, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Michael Oliver. Um, Michael's a gentleman I ran across uh, for the first time a couple of years ago. And to be honest, the first time I saw his stuff, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Uh, his momentum charts were just kind of totally foreign to me. But after I saw him present his process at this conference, um, I it, something really clicked with me. And uh, since then, I found his research to be invaluable. Uh, Michael's been studying markets for over 40 years, but it was really the 1987 stock market crash that uh, was his aha moment where he decided to pursue uh, momentum full time. And it was because of the forecasting ability and his early work in the area and its success during that time that gave him the confidence to move forward uh, with just studying pure momentum. Um, in this episode, we discuss how his political, uh, his background in political philosophy led him to where he is today. Uh, we discuss the details of his unique process. Nobody's doing what Michael does or anything like it in the markets today. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce you to, to his stuff. Um, we also discuss what his process, what his research suggests about the current market environment, how it rhymes eerily with uh, some earlier times in his investment career. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Oliver. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Michael Oliver, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Jesse. Great meeting you too. Also, the conference in Oregon that was a year and a half ago. Yeah, that, yeah. almost two years. I was trying yeah. to remember was that was that two years ago, I mean, three years ago. I, yeah. I start losing track. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm really excited to finally have you on and do this because um, I, I just have to be honest with you your your methodology is something that I've found to be absolutely invaluable to the way I look at the markets. And I, I just, I, I'm really glad for this opportunity to share your process with, with my audience, because I think it's something, like I said, totally unique and, and very valuable. But um, I got to ask you first off, considering that, you know, your process is this, I, I think it's a brand new way of looking at the markets. Um, I, I'm just curious to know, was your start on Wall Street kind of more the traditional on the traditional side of things? Or what was it really that got you into finance in the first place? Oh, let's see, political philosophy. <laughs> uh, I was working at a, a PhD University of Hawaii in political philosophy. It was a uh, libertarian background to myself, and naturally, my advisor professors weren't of that bent. Uh, and this is 1973-74, and we know what happened in 74. The Great Recession came, and, or near depression. At that point in time, it looked pretty gloomy for <clears throat> young would-be professors, regardless of your viewpoint but especially with mine, to acquire a job somewhere. I had a friend who had joined Merrill Lynch's commodity department back in the States, and he said, come on in, the water is fine. So we moved back to the States. I terminated my work on a Ph.D. um, and um, went to E.F. Hutton. 
And I applied actually at Merrill Lynch first, but they, they turned me down because my personality didn't suit their profile of what a salesman is. <laughs> so I went to EF Hutton, remember that firm. I loved, I loved Hutton. Uh, and when I was hired there as a commodity trainee, uh, the process of training then was literally to go to New York City and work in the headquarters office of Hutton's International Commodity Division, which then was headed by David Johnston, who was also the chairman of the COMEX. And I joined Hutton in April of 75, a few months after gold had been legalized for futures trading on the COMEX. And uh, basically, I apprenticed under him uh, as a commodity guy. And I had a fundamental uh, love and desire to be involved in the gold market. But Johnson was a technician, a fairly simple, straightforward price chart type technician. And he taught me the ropes in that regard. And uh, I spent a year and a half there, and then I moved out into the retail part of the Hutton system as a futures broker. And those were good years for futures brokers. You know, we had the big commodity boom in the late 70s. It peaked in 1980. So that was the place to be, and it was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, Stockbrokers were uh, dying on the vine (laughs) during those five or six years in the early, mid-70s through 1980. The market was just doing nothing. It was a wasteland. And it was commodities that were in total charge. And we had what they call stagflation. And basically, if it was a commodity, it was going up big, uh, probably even cow manure. But uh, all the basic commodities were headed up. And frankly, uh, what I see right now developing, I think, is this very similar fundamental and technical situation uh, where you don't see at the moment, you don't see the uh, common signs of commodity inflation. Therefore, the people say there's no inflation. Well, inflation can be measured all kinds of different ways. I look at an S&P chart, and I see inflation, uh, the effects of monetary policy. Uh, I think it's shifting, and I think as the grains now uh, bolster themselves off of their what we call theoretical zero lows of the last several years, that uh, the fruit commodities are now going to join gold on the upside. And gold back then was also a leader as well. Uh, it was it bottomed after its bull market peak in the uh, 1975, as soon as it started trading, actually, it dropped until mid-76, got cut in half, basically. And at that point forward, gold started upside, but commodities didn't. And about a year later or so, the commodities joined gold. Well, I think we're in a similar situation right now uh, with gold clearly chest out and strong. And we're seeing the grains turn up. Also, some of the soft food commodities, so sugar, coffee, and so forth, are turning up by our metrics. Uh, and we even think that oil and copper, which had a very good year in, in 2016 and 17, and then slumped late last year, are ready to probably reorganize themselves and, and get back in, in stride on the upside again, probably in the next several months. They need to do a little bit more work. But anyway, it was an interesting time back then. So I didn't come into the business in any regular way. Uh, uh, yeah, and I want to come back to the, uh, the, you know, the, the political science thing. You know, I think it's so fascinating to d- talk with people who you know, didn't study you know, finance and economics in, in, in college and have kind of more diverse backgrounds because they bring different models um, to, uh, to, you know, to work with uh, in terms of their, the way they approach finance. What was it about um, politics, p- political science that, that really grabbed you um, earlier on? Well, um, I was a student of RAND. 
And uh, also I knew Murray Rothbard, uh, Dr. Murray Rothbard, the founder of modern libertarianism. Uh, and so those were my two platforms I stood on. And they were antagonistic to each other personally. Uh, Rothbard was uh, briefly a part of the collective, it was called, uh, which is Ayn Rand's inner circle of people, which Alan Greenspan was a member, if you recall, this is back in the 60s and so forth. Uh, so that was my intellectual roots uh, as, as being a libertarian. And back then, the libertarian movement was, if you use the word libertarian back then, it usually meant socialist anarchist type thing. You know, the Bakunins of the world back in the 1800s. <laughs> but uh, it was Rothbard who changed it and made uh, the word libertarian now, which is a common household word. People associate it with free markets. So there's been a big evolution in, in the concept. Uh, and it still persists now, and now it has quite a uh, uh, broad scope. I remember uh, I, I issued a book in 2013, which is a political philosophy book, very small little tome, uh, called The New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism. And uh, the, uh, the Mises Institute reviewed it highly, and uh, which made me quite proud. The Mises Institute's in Auburn, Alabama, University of Alabama, they're uh, what you call a think tank of the libertarian bent, uh, even more so than the Cato Institute, for example. But anyway, so that was those were my roots. But uh, how did that perhaps affect me in the markets? Well, aside from giving me a, a bias toward gold and a distrust of, of statist money units, uh, ultimately, instead of using orthodox technical analysis, meaning price charts with lines drawn on them, uh, which was helpful, um, it took me out of the fundamental category and at least gave me a sense of what timing is. But the distortions caused by central bank money units are, are rampant. We all know this. So, you know, the U.S. M2 money supply basically doubles every 10 years. So if you're sitting in the swimming pool, the water level of the pool about doubles in volume every decade. Well, naturally, over time and across asset categories, that distortion, that ongoing distortion, there are ebbs and flows within that distortion, but still it's basically ongoing, uh, will affect price levels. So that, you know, when I was a kid, you bought a loaf of bread, it was 29 cents. We go to a grocery store now, what is it? So, um, and it, it's not necessarily equally applied across asset categories all the time. You know, it, investors have a preference, and that preference can shift from stocks to bonds to commodities. And uh, so it's, it's not always an even flow of as the money units expand in quantity that that will affect all markets equally. But anyway, with that distortion in mind, the distortion of the money unit as a measuring stick, uh, I tried to circumvent its distortions. Well, a lot of people might say, well, let's, let's do CPI. Let's back everything out, CPI metrics, government-issued metrics. Well, that doesn't work very well. Uh, the, the better way to do it, in our view, is to measure we have to measure versus a money unit. I mean, we're always measuring either versus yen or euros. Uh, if you look at the DAX index or the Nikkei uh, and the U.S. market, and the commodity markets and dollars. So we can't totally back that out. But what we do is we sidestep it a bit by creating momentum oscillators. What a momentum oscillator does, uh, and I'll distinguish it from what we normally think of as momentum metrics that are popular today, like MACD and RSI. But we create bar charts, just like a price chart, but we measure each time unit, whether it's a daily bar or a weekly or monthly, 
in relation to various means, averages. Now, we don't care about the average itself necessarily, which crossing over a 200-day line doesn't mean anything to us. That's random noise. But when you plot these charts in relation to long-term and intermediate and short-term means, averages, you end up with a chart picture that is sometimes similar to but often different from what you see when you look at a price chart. So to that extent, we've separated the price action, which is strictly measuring by these elastic measuring units called money, and we allow the market itself to generate its own dynamics via the changes in its moving averages. Obviously, a dull market that's doing not much but going sideways, its moving averages won't be very dynamic. And it's so when you measure versus a fairly sluggish market, it's not going to be exhibiting the kind of uh, ebbs and flows that you see in a more volatile market. Um, but that ebbs and flows in the moving averages themselves isn't caused by the money unit, it's caused by the market itself. And so to that extent, we've separated, sidestepped a bit from using simply price metrics. And the chart pictures we get are often distinctly different from what you see in the price chart. And I will say usually, and more, more, more all the time really, um, we will find breakout levels using this sort of straight line techniques or channel techniques or downtrend, uptrend charting methods that you use in a price chart, we apply to momentum. And we'll see structural breakouts in momentum that are preceding, usually well ahead of what price might later do. So momentum is usually a, a leading indicator of trend intention or of trend failure at the end of a bull trend. Uh, we look at other issues, not just the structures of the momentum charts themselves, but whether the momentum is confirming a new price high or a new price low in a move. And if it's not, that's often a hint. The non-confirmation is often a hint that what you see on the price chart might be wrapping up, that that, that trend you see, the decline or the rise, could be ending. Because often we get non-confirmations prior to a trend change. We also thank goodness to for Excel, because I'm certainly not a mathematically oriented person, so thank you, Mr. Gates. <laughs> uh, we use uh, things like standard deviation of momentum readings. Uh, we know that price chartists use uh, Bollinger bands, which are standard deviation bands. We apply those same concepts to momentum readings, and we find it very helpful in indicating overbought and oversold conditions. Uh, but anyway, so to that extent, my political philosophy background caused me to distrust money units. And then I sort of sashayed my way out of simple price chart measurements by implementing uh, momentum metrics. Probably the first time that really smacked me in the face in terms of genuinely going forward with momentum as a method was in 1987. I did catch the crash. And I didn't catch it like I should have. <laughs> Frankly, I got out too soon. I got out on the crash morning, which was, for me, a, a, a hugely sharp drop that morning. Had, had I taken a walk for the next seven hours and come back, it would have made a lot more. But momentum clearly uh, forecasted that event. The, um, if you looked at a price chart of, let's say, a weekly or monthly of the S&P, going back four or five years prior to the 87 crash, you would have seen an uptrending market, you know, with uh, irregular lows. They didn't line up with a good trend line or anything of the sort. It was just an ascending pattern of higher lows, higher highs. So it really wasn't that helpful looking at a price chart. But when you looked at a momentum chart, 
specifically a quarterly momentum oscillator. What I mean by that is you take monthly bars and you measure how each month's price range of high, low, and close is in relation to the three-quarter moving average, which you adjust every quarter. Uh, and what you had there was a, was a structure that was flatlined where for several years, every time the S&P price action came down to its three-quarter average, the zero line on this momentum chart, it would stop and turn up. Got to be a, almost a religion. You know, it would stop at the zero line and turn up. It's called returning to the mean. <laughs> uh, and it did it too many times. And finally, in late 2000, uh, 1987, when you made your high in August, that high did not confirm on momentum. In other words, there have been higher highs earlier in 1987 on the momentum chart, even though price was making a new high. So we had the hint that, uh-oh, it's running out of gas. It's losing momentum. Well, the August high, we dropped into September, didn't get close to the three-quarter average at that point, but in early October, with the change in that mean, it's a new quarter, so you adjust the three-quarter average up, bang, you drop down to the zero line again, the three-quarter moving average, after a non-confirmed high. So you have an oscillator that's making a lower high, and it's banging back down on a structure that a blind man could see almost. If you just draw a line through the lows of prior couple of years on the oscillator. So while price didn't have a good trend structure to be committed to in terms of the uptrend line that had multiple points on it, the momentum chart did, and it jumped off the page at you. And uh, frankly, the crash was a perfect swing measurement of the topping pattern. In other words, prior to the crash, the upper reading in momentum that was achieved in the year or so prior to the breakdown through the zero line was a certain percent over the three-quarter average. And lo and behold, when the crash occurred, the low was an equal percent below. So anyway, that convinced me at that point, and I was a futures broker at that time, to move into or develop the methodology more uh, as, a, as a core to what I did. And in 1992, um, I was in North Carolina at the time, which is where I am right now. Uh, by coincidence, I, I moved back here. Uh, Wachovia Bank was headquartered here, not far from where I live. And Wachovia, of course, has since gone by the way. But it was its national headquarters was here, and the head of their trust department and the head of their bond department, the same individual, heard about my work through a, a friend of his and invited me to come over to his office. And at that point, I was plotting charts by hand <laughs> and faxing, right. faxing the chart by hand. So uh, real antiquated stuff. I, didn't, I wasn't computerized at that point, 1992. Um, and we had a long chat, and he said, have you ever heard of soft power? And I said, no. And he said, well, we as an asset management firm can uh, pay for research via commissions that we pay to whoever executes our trades we, they can then pay for private research. Would you be willing to do that? And that's I, I shifted out of brokerage at that point and uh, acquired institutional accounts over time. But we expanded to retail clients uh, about four years ago, uh, you know, individual investor types and so forth. Um, and anyway, so we look at all four asset categories, uh, all exchange, four major exchange traded categories. That would be commodities, foreign exchange, debt, and equities. We look globally, not just U.S., and we're more or less continually sifting through these markets looking for changes. Uh, we tend not to focus on short-term stuff. Sometimes that can be important because short-term will sometimes domino into intermediate trend changes or long-term trend changes. 
But generally, we focus on on the bigger stuff, the moves that are likely to last a year or more. Um, and right. Go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, no, and I was just going to say those are the those are the things I really you know value most about your um, your framework is it really helps you um, to see those longer term turning points. But but I, before we get into that, I, I got to come back first. I got to say you answered a ton of my questions that I already have written down, <laughs> but I have, you you brought up a ton, a ton more questions that I that I've uh, that I already have. I mean, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was because your work is is so unique. Um, you know, I, I don't I haven't seen anybody doing anything like what you're doing. Um, I was going to ask you where that kind of creativity and independent thought came from, but when you start talking about libertarianism and uh, you know Austrian economics, I mean those types of things are kind of built on on independent thinking and, and independent streak. So that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, are there any um, you know I guess books in those areas that that you could recommend to listeners? Oh, you mean libertarian thought? Um, yes. Uh, Ayn Rand wouldn't like this, but her books, <laughs> she, uh, the book that I wrote, which actually was my master's thesis back in the early seventies, uh, uh, the new libertarianism, uh, I issued it in 2013. Uh, and it, my son edited cause my, I'm not the best writer in the world, but it's a very boring little book. It's a uh, mainly logic, uh, simple concepts, but, uh, conceptually based like a structure. And I begin with basic philosophy, uh, metaphysics, epistemology. Then we go to ethics, then to economics and politics. And that's where Rothbard comes in because he's the man who basically I've taken Rothbard's political economic views and put them on top of Ayn Rand's basic core philosophical premises, chopping off her political views, which were basically what you might call founding father conservatism. Um, so I've merged the two people together. So that's one book I'd recommend. <laughs> pardon me. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, pardon me for not yeah. reading it before the yeah. interview. I, I, I had no idea you'd authored it. I'm going to have to go read it now. And we might have to do another episode on the book. <laughs> but Rothbard's written many books, and they're, most of them are absolutely great. Uh, Power and Market, uh, Man, Economy, and State, um, For a New Liberty. Uh, he's written great stuff. Uh, and for Rand, of course, she's written some philosophy books, but her main things are her novels, which include philosophy. So Atlas Shrugged would be the top of the list. So those are recommended readings uh, for somebody who wants to get an introduction to libertarian thought, but more deeply, the philosophical basis that I think Ayn Rand gives to the new libertarianism. Uh, it's not just Austrian economics. You have to have basic concepts below politics and economics before you can arrive at political or economic conclusions. They're not suspended in thin air. There's, there's got to be core premises below them, and I think Rand provides that. So anyway, those, those are some recommended books. Yeah, and I'll put those uh, links in uh, the, the, the posts that I put up on the, on the website. Um, you talked about... Um, you know, developing the momentum methodology, but what was it that really inspired you to look at markets this way? Was there, was there something, um, I, I know you talked about, you know, trying to look at how money, you know, flows across assets, but, but what was it that said, Hey, you know what, let me try and isolate momentum. Hmm. Uh, I guess that one of the things was the, the so-called momentum indicators that now are on everybody's quote screen, you know, more or less free with the, software you have, uh, like MACD and RSI. Uh, my problem with them was they don't snap. They don't have a, a crispness to them. They're, they, they are what they look like. They're wet noodles. 
uh, meaning they oscillate up and they go down, but there's this sort of sleepy moves. They're not really structurally important. You don't draw trend lines through them. They go, oh, we're too high of a level on RSI, supposedly. Oh, now we're too low of a level. But basically, you get these wet noodle oscillations, and they don't have a crisp, distinct point where you say, okay, there, it just broke something. Whereas, like on a price chart, if you're a good price chart technician, and I respect those guys, uh, problem is too many people do it, uh, you're looking for sharpness, crispness of structure, something that gets broken, whether it's a three-point trend line or a flat floor or a ceiling, something like that. Well, most of the momentum indicators that, you, that most people rely on are wet noodle indicators, and therefore they don't have that crisp now signal to them. Um, and so in applying the notions of price chart analysis to momentum structural analysis, we do get those points where we can see a structure that's massive. Like I said, a 12-year-old kid with a ruler and a crayon could plot these charts sometimes. You just have to know how to plot them and how to mathematically organize them. But the structures are, are, will smack you in the face when you see the chart and say, wow, it doesn't even show up on a price chart. And so when it breaks, usually you get a gusher, you know, you get a move in the new direction. And quite often that move is, is sudden enough and dramatic enough, especially if the structure is big, wide. You know, it takes a couple of years to build, or in the case of a shorter-term indicator, it takes weeks to build. When you break it, you, you often get the ambush effect that the price chart folks suddenly are surprised by what happened. Um, an example recently was the gold we had a gold price chart breakout. <clears throat> Everybody, with a, again, with a ruler and a crayon can see it. You go back to 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, you could draw a line across all the gradually declining highs that were made by gold. <clears throat> and generally, that line came through around 1350 or so. And we broke out in June. And when you did, you went up another $90 in a heartbeat. Well, in point of fact, if you use momentum, uh, time scales to measure gold, like annual momentum, uh, where you measure against a three-year average, or quarterly momentum, or things in the longer-term metrics like that. Your breakouts occurred well before price ever took out that obvious price chart structure that now everybody's fixated on. So we could see it coming. Price was a laggard to what momentum had already said. In fact, momentum said it as early as uh, the price of 1140 back in February of 2016. Uh, which was a nice entry point to be in the gold market, $1,140. It was about $90 off the low, and uh, look where we are now. But anyway, so that's what we look at is we, we look for the crispness and the size of the structure, just like a price chartist would. If he saw a, a price trend line that went back a year and was hit three or four times, he would pay attention to it. Well, we look for the same type of clarity of structure, but on momentum, and we'll usually get it well before the price folks get their comparable breakout. Yeah, and, and I love to hear you explain it like that because, um, you know, I, I had been using RSI and MACD for, you know, 15 years or something. And then uh, I think it was Bill Fleckenstein, um, you know, turned me on to, to your work. And the first time I looked at it, I, I really made an effort to try and appreciate it. And I, I couldn't make sense, but I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But after you presented it um, at the Aspen conference where we met, uh, it really, you know, something just clicked. And I said, oh my gosh, this is, you know, so many people today in the market say, you know, price is truth and they don't pay attention to anything but price. I, I sort of think of your charts, the momentum charts, as actually being the real truth 
behind price. Like you said, um, you know, you were talking about gold also. And, you know, in those 2015 uh, lows that gold was making, you know, momentum was really suggesting that, you know, this thing's not going to break down and continue going lower. This thing's poised for uh, a, a, ma- a major reversal. And so, um, you know, to me, that's that's the value of it is showing you, you know, what's really what's really going on, the real, the truth of the move. And in terms of cycles, you know, it shows you the beginning of the cycle, the middling of, middle of the cycle. And the end of the cycle, the way we kind of think about cycles, momentum does a much better job of kind of uh, displaying that than price alone. Um, and so I want to I want to kind of dig in to more specifically into the methodology, because I, I think it's, you know, to me, I've started charting this stuff on my own and I'm an absolute newbie in it. Uh, but but just to try and get a handle on it um, and, and look at it has been very valuable to me. Um, you, you know, look across different time frames. So it, it starts with, uh, like you said, a mean or a, like a moving average. Um, but you're not looking at that. You're looking at price relative to that. Correct. So, you know, on the different time frames, um, you know, w- w- what specifically are those, those means that you're, you're looking at over different time frames? Well, uh, we generally are widest is a, a three-year average or a 36-month average, which is adjusted monthly. A three-year average is adjusted at the end of every year as a mean to measure annual momentum. So you're incorporating the last three years of action, the highs, the lows, and the closes, not just the closes and calculating the averages. And you plot the momentum, uh, monthly bars in relation to those averages. And uh, sometimes the structures will occur not at the average itself. Uh, It might be 10% below or 10% above that the zero line on the oscillator where the structure develops. But you just plot it and let it it sort of happen. You know, don't don't force it. (laughs) It will tell you when it's ready. Uh, Your eyes will see it. Uh, And then on the lesser time scale, we drop down to three-quarter average. Uh, another version of that would be a 40-week average, which is also about the same as a 200-day average. Anyway, those those means are also of about the same duration. So it's, it's long-term, but it's less than annual. And then we drop down to three months, 10-week, that kind of stuff. And we even go down to dailies, um, three-day, 10-day, and so forth. In fact, lately, we've been focused on the S&P on a 10-day average oscillator because it looks so ripe for a downturn which could feed into something larger. It's like dominoes. You know, you have three or four dominoes lined up, and you hit one of them, and it hits the next, hits the next. Sometimes a small uh, short-term trend change can topple into something bigger and generate greater weakness or greater strength in that market. So we look at all the timescales and fit them together because it's a fact that no market maintains its trend across timescales all the time. You know, dynamic bull market, you're going to have pullbacks that might show up on your weekly oscillators, your monthlies. But don't disturb the annual momentum structure that remains positive. Uh, So you have to live with that. And and so sometimes we will identify counter trend moves that are enough to pay attention to. So if you're long a given market, we see enough breakage on an intermediate term trend, we might uh, inform our subscribers and say, beware, you could get a pullback here. And it's not coming from the long-term stuff. It's coming from the lesser. So we fit them together uh, in, in terms but of... But you'll also be able to identify that that intermediate-term pullback is probably a good buying opportunity because long-term momentum is still positive. Right. If, if, in other words, if that intermediate trend, if there's nothing on the annual, let's say, annual momentum chart that, on a downside in a, in a bull market, that any downside you see is not going to break anything because there's nothing to break, maybe. There's not even developed structure. And that's... that's 
that's generally a prerequisite for trend changes. You have to see the structure developed on the momentum chart. In other words, let's say repeated lows at the same level or an uptrend structure on momentum. If there's no structure to break, generally, you're not, you're not going to get a break in that time scale. Now, lesser time scales might break, but if there's nothing to break on the bigger stuff, then you take it in context and say, ah, oh, this is an intermediate downturn, but it's not going to amount to anything more than an intermediate downturn. Therefore, as you said, a buying situation. Uh, so we fit the pieces together. Yeah, and putting together those multiple timeframes is so valuable. I think one of the mistakes I see so many investors making is not marrying their time frame with the chart time frame that they're looking at. They, they might call themselves a long term investor and they're looking at daily charts or hourly charts. You know, right. so it's you know, yeah, it's so important. I think it's so valuable that you do put together those multiple time frames. Um, but you also. You know, in addition to just isolating momentum and then looking at these structures, you actually um, kind of draw support and resistance and channels on top of these momentum charts, which a lot of you know traditional technical uh, analysts would say you know a sacrilege. You, you you shouldn't you know put technical analysis onto an indicator. What what would you, you know, what do you have to say about that? Well, it's like a, if you're a price chartist, and uh, let's say you, you, one of the tools of price chart analysis we respect the most is uh, channel analysis. And there's a certain way to do that that most people don't quite know how to do. But it, it's a legitimate way of projecting uh, the zigzag trend of a, of a market. Uh, oftentimes, you'll find, uh, let's say, in an uptrend, we plot across the highs first, not under the lows, which is what most people do. So you're in an uptrend, and we plot a, a line through, let's say, peak weekly closes in an uptrend. And then with a parallel ruler, we drop down and, and intersect a low that occurred between those two peaks and project that line upward. And uh, sure enough, with the S&P on a 10-day average oscillator, for example, we had a sell-off a couple weeks ago where the S&P dropped about to 30, 40, 50 points. And we looked at the 10-day average oscillator and it had a channel on it, but it hadn't hit channel bottom yet. And it looked, looked like if S&P would merely pull back to its 10-day average, that it would find support around there, not because of the average itself, but because that's where the channel intersected at the zero line on the momentum chart, meaning at the average. Sure enough, that's where the S&P and the NASDAQ and 100 both stopped a couple weeks ago in that dip. In the process of doing that, they turned up again, therefore defining further the validity of the channel that we had projected. And Therefore, we knew our channel thought it might work. It did work, and therefore it validated itself by stopping at the channel bottom and turning up again. So once we get a structure that's that well set up, that clear to the eye and proper measurement, uh, we have a, a technical structure then going forward that we could say, okay, now if you go down and break that channel bottom, you got a problem, at least on a short-term basis. Well, the same concept can be applied to long-term analysis. So... Uh, I, I see nothing wrong with projecting likely support. Price charters do it all the time. You know, they find multiple lows that hit a certain level on a price chart, and they say, "Well, that's where support is." Well, until it proves otherwise, it is. Uh, well, we do the same thing with momentum. Yeah, and, and to me, just you know, following your work for a couple of years now, um, the way that you do it, like you said earlier, um, is. Just such so simple. Um, you're not trying to to um, you know 
create these complex analyses. It's basically just very, very simple. And a lot of the times I'll, I'll look at your work and I think it reminds me of kind of Elliott Wave type of analysis where, um, you know, Elliott Wave talks about the third move in a five uh, mm-hmm. wave structure is always the strongest move. And that's always when momentum should be peaking or breaking out to a new high. Um, tells you the trend is, you know, at, at its strongest point. Um, and so when you isolate momentum on your charts, you can really see that, that, you know, momentum is making a new high along with price. That is kind of confirming that uh, the momentum is very strong and that we're probably in the middle of a move um, rather than towards the late stages of a move. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, we're not Elliott Wave fans, but uh, we do notice that if you have clear waves in a momentum trend, uh, with ups and downs, and, and they're clear, they're not, not subjective. <laughs> uh, you had no debate looking at the chart. Uh, three waves is usually all you get. And uh, that's why we're very concerned about the U.S. stock market now, because if you go back to the 2009 low and you plot the S&P or the NASDAQ 100 on an annual momentum chart uh, against the three-year average or 36-month, which we often use, the highs we made over the last few years, 2018 and current highs, are not confirming and are part of the third wave. And there's structure set below to break. A massive, massive structure. In fact, it's the biggest pending downside breakout structure that I've seen in a century of stock prices. So we've gone back and done you know, archival work on the Dow and so forth all the way up to the present. And I've never seen a structure this big that's a pending downside breakout level. Uh, And it adjusts up every month because we're using, for instance, a 36-month average, and it's rising. So if you break the horizontal on this annual momentum chart, the number that breaks that adjusts up each month. So it's like the little Pac-Man. Remember those games (laughs) back decades ago? Coming up from from below, smacking his jaws open close. (laughs) So the structure below the S&P and the NASDAQ right now, which is not broken, but you're looking at a third wave that didn't confirm, and you're halfway between the highs of that oscillator wave and that line. And so it looks to me to be inevitable that it's going to break down. And when it does, it should be quite severe and also should indicate a massive furtherance of the asset class shift that's already underway. And we think it is underway. We think that, the, for instance, gold has done quite well. Uh, T-bonds have done quite well. So investor preferences over the last six, seven months has definitely shifted away from stocks, which are all of, whatever they, about 3.5% right now above where they were a year and a half ago in the S&P. So hardly a big gain, uh, whereas money is clearly flowing into other asset categories like consumer staple stocks, utility stocks. Uh, so we're seeing that asset class shift. Well, obviously, if the S&P ever breaks this massive momentum floor that we've defined to our subscribers and we update it uh, on this annual momentum oscillator, it takes out to the last eight, nine years of oscillator lows, uh, we'll get a gush. And that will further prod investors away from equities and into commodity-based assets, we think. Yeah, and that's a, that's a terrific chart. That that long term chart of the S and P, um, I, I think, is relative to the thirty six month average. Where was the the peak in momentum? I'm guessing it was around twenty thirteen. Uh, let's see. No, it'd be fourteen fifteen was the peak. Fourteen fifteen. Yeah, fourteen okay. fifteen. And remember, we had the sell off in late summer uh, two thousand fifteen that was coming off that oscillator high, and by December 
excuse me, January of 2016, and again in February 2016, the S&P was down to 1810 in price. Well, that happened to be where the 36-month average was. So you, you've hit that, that average three times. You hit it in 2011 during the European debt crisis sell-off. You hit it in 2016, and you stopped on it again last December and turned up. Uh, so the structure is ripe. It is well-defined. And it's, uh, as far as we're concerned, the market is already halfway broken because we did break the channel. There was a channel of momentum act from the 2016 low through 2018. That, that constituted that third wave. But it also was a nice little channel. And you broke that in October last year. And sure enough, what happened? October, you collapsed to the December low. And then the December low went down to what? It, it was already broken through the three-year wide channel, three-year long channel, and went down to the zero line on momentum, the 36-month average, where it had been twice before. And again, it bounced. And we had predefined that number before the December low occurred. We said, if the S&P trades, I think the number was 23.13, if it touches that, it will not stop. It must stop above that number. Where did it stop? 23.42. So a percent or so in front of that breakage number, which would have blown out the entire momentum structure. And sure enough, then they produced the rally to a new high, non-confirmed. And uh, we're, if we start, to, therefore, it's very important now to focus on the shorter-term S&P because if you start to topple here again, uh, and I suspect, I have to suspect psychologically that the longs are getting a little bit frustrated. They don't sound like it because every a new high is you know glorious and so forth. But if you go back a year and a half, like we're all of three and a half percent right now above the high of January 2018. So they're getting a little frustrated, I would think, in terms of, oh, it's another new high, but it doesn't go anywhere. And then it drops. And then you make another new high and it doesn't go anywhere. Pretty soon you get frustrated. And one of the problems now with the S&P, and I'm talking price at this point, if you look at the price chart, it could be a widening top pattern, which is an Edwards and McGee tool of a, a indication of a topping pattern. But that's a very wild affair to try to judge that kind of thing. But the problem is that the up and down moves in the S&P over the last year and a half have basically cleaned the slate, wiped the slate clean a couple times. So if you turn down in price now, you can't exactly define a level that says, oh, that's where support is, or I don't want to go below that. It's an open void. And when you have an open void on a price chart with the clarity of where is support is not evident, then you can get panic. Because frankly, there's no unanimity among the charts, the, the would-be buyers, in terms of where do I buy this beast if it rolls over again. Uh, therefore, we're focused right now actually on the short to intermediate term S&P because we know where the long term is. We know what the numbers are. But how do you get there? And, well, you've got to start a short-term sell-off that might morph into an intermediate-term sell-off, and then you get there. Then you blow the big stuff. So that's our focal point right now. But we also inter inter interlink that with other asset categories because we can see that money is, in fact, moving. We do a lot of spread analysis. Uh, for example, plotting XLP, the Consumer Staple ETF, in relation to the S&P and it, as the S&P came back up here and made a new, a new high, why didn't that spread give up its gains and make a new low? Because why own defensive stocks? If the S&P is making a new high, why isn't that spread showing weakness on the part of the consumer staples? It's not. So money's flowing into these defensive areas, flowing into T-bonds, T-notes, and gold.
And, and those changing risk appetites are really important to, to pay attention to. You know, it's not just, there's a lot of different things. You you know, you mentioned the S&P making new highs, but the average stock is not. You look at, you know, the Russell down 15, 16% off its highs and the average stock has got to be somewhere close to that. Um, and so that's that's kind of classic late cycle behavior for the stock market, um, right? Where, where you're seeing that waning participation. So, um, yeah, go, go ahead. No, the, uh, you mentioned the Russell. Uh, we've run numerous spread studies on it measured versus uh, the S&P 500 going back to 2009 lows. And that spread has tended to behave in a positive way with the net trend of the market, meaning we get a strong surge out of the S&P going back to 2016 low, especially. Um, and we've had a lot of ups and downs from that low at 1810 on the S&P. We had a lot of surges up and pullbacks. The spread between the Russell 2000 or IWM, which is an ETF for it, and the S&P has gained during those upsurges. So the behavior of the small caps has been positively correlated to the net upswings or downswings in the S&P. All of a sudden, it hasn't. We had this last upswing from the May low to new highs in the S&P, and that spread is at multi-year lows. It blew out everything going back to 2009. Why? Obviously, an investor preference shift. Uh, the risk on that they saw in small caps, they're not interested in anymore. So that's a, another indication on a spread basis that something's wrong with the popular bullish assumptions about, about the U.S. stock market. Yeah. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller just gave an interview recently, too, where he talked about you know the Russell relative performance is something he monitors uh, as an economic forecast, uh, even more than a price forecast. Um, and, and to me, that's one of the things I think about in terms of your work, too, especially when you look at these long term trends, they really help, uh, you know, I, I think. First of all, trend followers are trying to capture like the meat of a move. And I think momentum really does a good job of helping you understand that better than just pure price. Um, but let's talk about some of these, um, some of these major, um, uh, cycles and, and things. Because I, for me, one of the things that, that your work really helps me with is kind of inform my macro thinking. Um, you know, what, what are commodities doing? What are, what are stocks doing in terms of the long-term cycles? So if you wouldn't mind, what are, so what are you, what are your kind of views, long-term views on, on just different asset classes right now? Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> the gold has already spoken just like it did in the mid seventies. And it's turned up before we see like the Bloomberg Commodity Index right now is about squarely in the middle of its price action for the last, uh, since 2016. Uh, it's trading around 80 on the Bloomberg, and its highs have been in the low 90s, and its lows were down in the 70s. So it's sort of a non-event. But when we do momentum study of the Bloomberg, which of course includes uh, base metals, copper, crude oil, natural gas, grains, soft commodities, gold and silver, uh, it's well-balanced. We like it as a, as a commodity index because it's well-balanced. Some, uh, some other ones are more heavily weighted toward energy, therefore not what we call a pure commodity index. But our quarterly momentum studies of the Bloomberg show that it's got a structure just above it right now, and specifically its three-quarter average. It's used it as resistance repeatedly over the last year. In other words, it can't get through it. It trades a little bit above it but falls back. Uh, and you're not far away from breaking out over that now. And we think the contributors there, which weren't contributors in the commodity rally from 2016 through 2018, it's when the Bloomberg went from the low 70s to the low 90s. That was oil and copper back then, and gold. The grains weren't participating. Sugar, uh, 
briefly did, but coffee, cocoa, they weren't participating. Now suddenly we've got positive action out of the grains, sugar, coffee. Coffee's off the page in terms of price levels, but its momentum looks real good. Uh, so all these commodities that most people don't think are essential, <laughs> they're starting to pick up. And so what's going to take the Bloomberg higher? Well, gold is its heaviest weighted market. And it's obviously strong, so let's dismiss it for the moment. But the grains look like they're, they're going to participate now, not, not only participate, but possibly be the leading commodity sector within the Bloomberg. Oil and copper got beat up pretty big over the last uh, some their highs in late 2018, coincident, by the way, with the S&P high in late 2018. They dropped with the S&P to the December low. And though they have been linked to the stock market and, you know, some people can make sense out of that because they're economically sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they look like that the action they've done over the last six months, ups and downs in both markets, have begun to develop uh, the type of momentum structures that portend a future upside. So I don't think you're going to have the negative contribution from crude oil, which we had late last year, or from copper. We think those markets are about through pulling back, and they could divorce themselves from the stock market and join in with the already up in gold and the upturn in grains and the food commodities. So you have across-the-board commodity participation. What does that sound like? Oh, my, the late 70s, <laughs> uh, which is what we think we're facing now. In other words, stagflation, where you have global economic malaise, the numbers don't look good, but why are commodities going up? Well, because the central banks went crazy. And the investors don't want to put the money to work where the central banks want them to put it to work, which is where they have put it to work over the last decade, namely the developed market stock indices. Investors are shifting. And so if we get another stock market panic and the CBs go crazy again, which they've indicated they will and are, the funny thing this time is that we don't think the investors are going to bid the stock market higher. We think they'll shift it into commodities. So you could very well have the same kind of fundamental technical situation we had in the mid to late 70s. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a lot of these signs pointing towards stagflation. I, my, the first question that pops in my mind, what does this mean for the bond market? Ultimately, uh, we turned major bearish on T-bond futures at a price of 166 in October of 2016. After that, Breakpoint. That was an annual momentum breakage. They dropped until late part of 2018 down into the 30s, 130s, excuse me. But in December last year, we saw an upturn in T-bond futures. And this is one of these timescale things we discussed a minute ago. Annual momentum is still negative in T-bonds, though it had paid some dues. It had, had enjoyed a nice drop based on the breakage of annual momentum. But quarterly momentum in December of last year, as price was below 140 on the T-bond futures, said, hey, I've got a breakout structure here, and I'm going to break through. And it broke through in the first week of December. Uh, the price of T-bond futures were 141 at the point of breakout. You couldn't see it on the price chart because T-bonds were coming up from a, a lower low than they'd made in, uh, in that two-year period. But the uh, quarterly momentum did not make a lower low. And it had a structure to break out above. And it was like a three-point downtrend line that went back a couple of years. So we put out a report saying on T-bonds that we've been bearish. And we said, but we think <laughs> this structure is so potent looking on the quarterly that even though the annual still looks negative, cover shorts 
and participate, if you wish, in the long side, because the T-bond quarterly looks so potent that it could override the quarterly for long enough to be dangerous if you're short. And sure enough, we shot up into the now into the mid-150s, near 160 recently, 159, I think. What do we think about T-bonds going forward or T-notes, the 10-year notes? We suspect, we know historically that whenever the stock market has a sudden panicky type drop, you'll have money flow into, into the T-bonds of flight to safety. That's, that's common sense. But the issue is the bigger trend, the non-panicky moves in the stock market. Once you break the market through its annual momentum structure on S&P, for example, you could have a panic period shortly after that, and then a more protracted bear market following that event. So we know in any rapid drop in the S&P, you're likely to have continued sharp rise in the T-bonds. So we're willing to accept that. But beyond that, we suspect that the T-bonds will peak possibly coincident with the S&P having a first major break through annual structure. Once that panics out of the way, at that point, we suspect that the T-bonds could roll over again, meaning higher yields. And in fact, we've got some numbers applicable this quarter that we have to wait to the end of the month to ring the bell. It would indicate that this strong rally in bonds could be leveling off at least. Uh, So far, we're not willing to admit to that, but we think the uptrend in bonds is still intact. But there is a point at which we could flip back the other way, and that's if the quarterly momentum, which has been boss since December, suddenly says, okay, I've had enough. Uh, we, we're not there yet, but we could see the potential for it. So, yes, the question was a good question. Uh, the, the uptrend in bonds, lower yields, isn't necessarily going to persist. Yeah, and I just love hearing how you are negotiating those different time frames because, yeah, on a longer term, you know, T-bonds have made a lower high, but people are still, I think, even maybe more bullish about bonds today than they were back in 2016. Um, I think I, I put out a tweet before, you know, a couple hours before we started recording, just asking people what they want me to ask you. Um, it seems the vast majority of people are asking about silver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, it's not participating the way that gold is and the way that you would expect. Oh, but. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on silver? Uh, we love it. Uh, first off, right now, no. Silver has been behaving far more anemically. You know, when gold pulled back oh, into the upper half of its multi-year trading range last August, for example, dropped down to 1160, uh, 11.61. Uh, and then turned up, we called the upturn there. But silver uh, has been has went all the way back almost to its bear market lows, while gold only pulled back modestly. And so it's definitely a more anemic market than gold up to this point. And we know it's poor man's gold, and therefore if the gold market gets excited, it's likely that the investor flow will end up going into the silver market at some point. Obviously, not early on, because otherwise silver would be much higher right now. But the quarterly momentum structure of silver is massive, and it's above us, and it's uh, on a quarterly momentum oscillator. We have a a line that goes across multiple highs going back three years. So you look at a price chart, you don't see this. You see a descending pattern of action. But on quarterly momentum, you see what we saw in 1987 the other way, which is a floor underneath the market that was broken. In the case of silver, it's got a shallow ceiling on the momentum oscillator, specifically about 5% above its three-quarter moving average. Uh, that If you break through that, silver will, go in, will turn into a gusher. So it will change its tenor and tone overnight, is our view. And at that point, we think it will suddenly catch up to gold on a spread basis, sort of relative performance basis. 
which everybody, of course, is moaning about right now, the silver-gold ratio, which is terrible and so forth and so on. And yes, it is. But when you break a structure as big as we see on quarterly momentum of silver, and we constantly update those charts, uh, we think that that will be like a light switch. And at that point, silver will suddenly be a very dramatic situation. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me think about too. You know, somebody I can't remember who it was. You know, talked about the difference in price action across asset classes, and the precious metals seem to kind of act. Not necessarily; they don't necessarily trade inversely to you know the stock market, but they kind of act inversely. So you know, they top with spikes. I think it was Tom McClellan who, who tweeted this the other day. They kind of bottom, make rounding bottoms, and then spike higher in price, kind of the opposite the way that the, the equity markets um, tend to act. Mm-hmm. Is there is there an asset class that that uh, has been especially difficult for you in trying to um, you know study momentum? Uh, in other words, when does momentum fail? Uh, I have to, you have to admit, anything can fail. But uh, we're so confident in momentum, especially when you do it on multiple timescales. Because if you have an erroneous signal, let's say on an on a intermediate or a daily, weekly type thing on, on a given market, in other words, short term, it says buy me or sell me. We, the filter is that we go to a next timescale up the ladder, let's say intermediate trend, it might uh, be using a three-month average as a metric to plot the oscillator, and it doesn't agree with the lesser one, then that tends to say, yeah, this signal from short-term gold or stocks or whatever probably isn't going to have a lot of potency because it doesn't have its next brother up the line ready to join in. Now, if on the other hand, we see a, a signal coming out of a market on the small time scale, and we see that the next time scale larger is ready to agree with from the small one pushes through the medium one, then we have a domino effect and we can sort of tell ahead of time that, yeah, this momentum signal is probably going to have some punch because it's, all it's got to do is go X amount and it's going to trigger something bigger. So to that extent, that helps us uh, obviate the problems that you, you just mentioned of, you know, how, how do you know it's going to work or not work? Yeah, and and that's brilliant because I think you know so many people are like I said earlier are focused on these short term you know daily price moves um, and so much of that can just be noise uh, and, and you know that those longer term time frames help you um, understand you know, those shorter term moves in the context of a longer term trend. Um, to totally change gears, do you have any? Um, hobbies or interests outside of the markets that uh, you know have you know taught you lessons about or informed your um, market analysis over the years no <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a good golfer I don't go fishing <laughs> I actually my work is it's not work to me it's, uh, I love it it's, uh, it's like some people are addicted to video games let's say uh, so I work quite, quite a few hours a day. My son is a, one of our chief technicians, Brett Oliver, and uh, we we love the work. It's it's sort of like a, you know, if you're a sports fan and somebody turns off the TV and doesn't let you watch the games, you, you get pretty upset. So we're, we I, I don't have a hobby like that. No, yeah. Other, yeah. other than I, other than philosophy and, and talking back to the news. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm much the same way. It reminds me of I I, I saw the Paul Tudor Jones Trader documentary uh, a few years ago, and uh, he talked about when he was in college and he and his friends would play backgammon, whatever. And then you know one of his buddies at one point said, "Hey, if you're really into games, let me introduce you to the ultimate game." And he, he taught him you know, futures trading. Yeah, and so yeah. absolutely, I mean, once I think 
once you find discover the ultimate game, um, you're addicted. Um, we are we are about out of time. Um, what? Uh, how can people stay in touch with your work, or or where would you like people to go to learn more about you and and uh, MSA? Well, the website is uh, Oliver MSA. MSA stands for Momentum Structural Analysis. OliverMSA.com. Uh, and there's we discuss our method on there. Uh, talk about our history. There's some sample reports. You can also request sample reports. We're happy to send them out. And uh, then you can decide whether you want to subscribe or not. We have various subscription categories. Uh, they're also list, listed on the site. But uh, so, but it, there's a lot of information on the website, so that, that probably answer most questions. And if not, then you ask for samples. Yeah, there's some great videos on there. And then uh, you do a good job of explaining a process on the website. I also um, recommend following the Twitter account. It's Oliver underscore MSA um, on Twitter. Um, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I, I probably haven't told you enough. Um, coming across, stumbling across your process and, and, and your analysis has been invaluable to me. So um, I, I, I want to thank you for that. And then also thank you so much for taking the time to share this with my audience. I hope everybody finds this extremely valuable. Uh, but th- thank you very much. It's been great fun. And thanks, Jesse. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.